Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, hosted by psychologist Colby Taylor. And today we're going to talk about a really important family of disorders. We're going to talk about substance-related and addictive disorders. This is an important topic for so many reasons. I imagine that many listeners are like myself and have known someone who has struggled with addiction or died of substance use. With the COVID-19 pandemic, the numbers I've been seeing on drug overdose have been really troubling. We're on track to break an all-time record for the number of overdose deaths in a year. And they're still sorting through statistics, and they probably will be for years. But the opioid epidemic within the COVID-19 pandemic seems to have gotten more severe, possibly as much as 50% more severe in 2020. Because I'm trained to do work with kids, I don't see as many of the disorders that I'm going to talk about today directly. I might see them in parents and caregivers, but fortunately, I don't see them as much in kids. But I know some people who work with these issues on a daily basis, and I hear that it can be very, very stressful. Some psychologists I know specialize in substance use, and my cousin is a psychiatrist who works inpatient with substance use. So I mentioned substance use a lot in the first minute or so of this episode. In the DSM-5, the family we're going to talk about is substance-related and addictive disorders. And we have 10 categories of substance-related disorders. In alphabetical order, they are alcohol-related, caffeine-related, cannabis-related, hallucinogen-related, inhalant-related, opioid-related, sedative, hypnotic, or anxiolytic-related. That one's all one category. Stimulant-related, tobacco-related, and then other or unknown substance-related disorders. So those are all substance-related. We're only going to have one non-substance-related disorder, and that's gambling disorder. Now, there's debate on whether other non-substance disorders should be included, like sex addiction. You know, there's sex addiction treatment centers around the country, thinking back to Anthony Weiner, or like exercise addiction or shopping addiction. I mentioned the TLC show My Strange Addiction a few episodes ago when we were talking about eating disorders and pica and people who are addicted to eating certain non-nutritive things like paint or chalk. So you can become addicted to just about anything. You can just watch a few episodes of the show if you don't believe me. Side note, I've spent a lot more time watching TLC during the pandemic. Uh, It's sort of my trash TV, especially 90 Day Fiance. Anyways, We'll see if more non-substance disorders make the cut in future uh, versions of the DSM. Um, The DSM-5 includes internet gaming disorder as a condition for further study. One of those disorders that didn't quite make the cut for this edition, but has some promising evidence behind it. The proposed criteria for internet gaming disorder is five or more of the following symptoms over a year. Preoccupation with internet gaming, where you constantly think about games or constantly think about playing your next game. Uh, But not internet gambling, because this would go under gambling disorder, which we'll talk about at the end of this episode. Uh, It also includes when you can't game, you get withdrawal symptoms like irritability or sadness. You might have tolerance for gaming, where you need more and more gaming to get your fix. You might unsuccessfully try to scale back your gaming or to quit. You continue to play games despite knowing they're psychosocially hurting you. You might lie to family members or friends about the amount of time you spent gaming. And you might use gaming to escape depression or anxiety or other negative moods. Now, what meets the threshold for excessive gaming is sort of debated. A review of over 250 studies shows no real consistent definition of gaming uh, addiction. Most of these studies have a definition of at least 8 to 10 hours a day or 30 plus hours per week playing a game. 
And it seems like a super high threshold. That's like a, like a full-time job of playing games. These studies also indicate that being a male, being between 12 and 20 years of age, and being Asian, especially from China or South Korea, are risk factors for gaming addiction. It's probably also comorbid with ADHD, OCD, and depressive disorders. Anyways, the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases, published by the World Health Organization, is going to include gaming disorder. And here's what the ICD-11 says. Gaming disorder is defined in the draft 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases, ICD-11, as a pattern of gaming behavior. Digital gaming, in quotation marks, or video gaming, in quotation marks, characterized by impaired control over gaming, increasing priority given to gaming over other activities to the extent that gaming takes precedence over other interests and daily activities, and continuation or escalation of gaming despite the occurrence of negative consequences. For gaming disorder to be diagnosed, the behavior pattern must be of sufficient severity to result in significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, and would normally have been evident for at least 12 months. So interestingly, video games, virtual reality technology, uh, I've been reading some articles, or, uh, they're using video games to treat opioid addictions. All right, so we used to draw this distinction between chemical or substance-related addictions and behavioral addictions. We might say, oh, gambling or video gaming is a behavioral addiction and opioid use is a chemical addiction. But recently, this sort of chemical addiction or behavioral addiction dichotomy has fallen out of favor. They both seem to share the same underlying neurological mechanisms. Now, that's not to say that all addictions are the same. Uh, you know, they're obviously not the same. Some drugs are way, way more addictive than others due to their chemical properties. And with behavioral addictions, we often don't have the intoxication or withdrawal symptoms we have with chemical addictions. But behavioral addictions at the neurological level involve chemicals. In the brain, both behavioral addictions and chemical addictions are going to involve dopamine. And dopamine-rich areas of the brain, what we call dopaminergic systems. And one of the important dopaminergic pathways is the mesolimbic pathway. Or sometimes I hear it called the mesocorticolimbic pathway. This is our reward pathway in the brain. Substances and behaviors can alter our reward pathway. And we can sort of, to oversimplify it, crave a drip of dopamine, whether it's from a substance like alcohol or from playing video games on a PlayStation. And I know the PS5 is about to come out, by the way. Um, anyways, the mesolimbic pathway involves midbrain structures like the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, and the nucleus accumbens, which you might remember is involved in neuroticism and anxious response. And uh, the mesolimbic pathway connects with uh, the, the, those midbrain structures I just talked about with the prefrontal cortex. So we know dopamine is heavily involved in addiction. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but my grandfather had Parkinson's disease. And he had it for over 30 years, which is an incredible amount of time to have Parkinson's disease before he passed away in 2012. And since Parkinson's disease involves depletion of dopamine, one of the drug treatments for it is L-dopa, levodopa. But one of the side effects of L-dopa uh, is that um, it can lead to some addictive behaviors. Uh, people on this medication might get drawn to gambling or to sensation-seeking behaviors like skydiving. My grandpa would sometimes have me pick up scratch-off lottery tickets for him when i come to visit. Anyways, let's wade through the substance-related disorders. Remember the 10 categories I listed out a little bit ago. And really, I could dedicate an entire episode to each of these disorders. So most of the substance-related disorders are divided kind of confusingly into two separate disorders, substance use disorders and substance-induced disorders. 
Substance use disorders are what we are going to traditionally call addictions. Addiction, by the way, isn't technically a scientific term. And despite using it in the name of the family, substance-related and addictive disorders, the DSM-5 sort of warns against using the term. Addiction kind of has an uncertain definition and also carries some negative baggage with it. It can have negative connotations. Um, sort of, you know, saying someone's an addict can be demeaning and hurtful. You'll see substance use disorders in scientific literature abbreviated as SUDS, S-U-D-S, which is okay, but we also have the acronym SUDS in psychology to indicate subjective units of distress, where you assign a zero to 10 number on how distressed you're feeling. So substance use disorders involve a substance impairing you. For impairment, you need two of the following, taking larger amounts than intended, desire or efforts to control your use, spending lots of time obtaining or recovering from the substance, craving the substance, not meeting job, home, or school obligations, social problems, missing important activities due to substance use, continuing to use the substance despite knowing you have a problem, and having tolerance or withdrawal. And tolerance and withdrawal are two really important terms in substance use literature. With tolerance, you need more and more of the substance to achieve the high. If you continue to take the same amounts of the substance, you don't get the same effects or intensity. You find yourself chasing a high. With withdrawal, you have changes, behavioral change or uh, physiological change that occurs due to stopping or reducing substance use. One sort of interesting and disturbing thing about tolerance is that a lot of people overdose while taking the same amount of the substance. So someone might shoot up with the same amount of heroin in their apartment every day at two o'clock. One day that person might shoot up at the exact same, with the exact same dose at, let's say 6 p.m. instead of two o'clock when they're on vacation in a ski lodge or something. And they overdose, despite it being the exact same dose. It seems like the body is to some extent able to prepare itself, to sort of brace itself for a dose based on sort of the set and setting we talked about in the psychedelic episode. If you're in a physically different surrounding, like a ski lodge versus your apartment, or if you take it at a different time, like at 2 p.m. versus 4 p.m., it can catch your body off guard and you can overdose. So substance use disorders are what most people would colloquially call addictions. They involve sort of longer-term behavioral, psychological, and physiological symptoms. Substance-induced disorders are going to be more acute, more proximally due to the chemical activity of the substance. They include substance intoxication, substance withdrawal, and medication-induced mental disorders, like psychosis due to using a substance. And I guess it's probably more illustrative to walk through an example of what this looks like in the DSM-5. So let's walk through alcohol-related disorders, since these are some of the most common. And alcohol-related disorders are divided into alcohol use disorder, alcohol intoxication, and alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol use disorder might be what we'd colloquially refer to as an alcohol addiction or an alcohol problem. It's three times more prevalent in men than women, with a 12.4 prevalence in men and a 4.9% prevalence in women. It has a higher prevalence in Latinx or Native American populations and a lower prevalence in African American and Asian American populations. Alcohol use disorder typically develops in the late teens or early 20s. It's highly genetic. Almost half of the risk for alcohol use is explained by genes. And here's a kicker, 4% of all deaths, 4% of all deaths are due to alcohol use. Alcohol intoxication is going to be more short-term. This is a diagnosis that doesn't stay with you for very long. 
It involves noticeable changes after drinking alcohol, like slurred speech, unsteady walking, impaired judgment, inappropriate sexual behaviors, and blackouts. The average age of first intoxication in the United States, by the way, is at 15 years old. Alcohol withdrawal involves symptoms that occur when you try to stop or cut back on alcohol use. Your heart rate might go up, you might sweat, you might have nausea, anxiety, or even seizures. And some people hallucinate. You might have the famous delirium tremens, DTs. And I'm not sure how DTs became universally associated with a pink elephant. The beer delirium tremens, which has the pink elephant as its mascot, by the way, is delicious. Uh, I went to the brewery in Brussels. Anyways, uh, DTs are actually pretty rare. They account for less than 10% of people with alcohol withdrawal. And it's almost always indicative of another medical or psychological problem. Alcohol withdrawal, by the way, usually lasts four to five days. So not every substance-related disorder in the DSM-5 has a substance use disorder or addiction component. Right now, we have no caffeine use disorder, though I've talked to a lot of people who report caffeine addiction. We don't have a diagnosis on the books right now. However, we do have caffeine-induced disorders like caffeine intoxication and caffeine withdrawal. Caffeine intoxication involves nervousness, restlessness, insomnia, flush face, high heart rate, muscle twitching, and rapid speech. According to the DSM-5, only 7% of people have experienced caffeine intoxication, which I think is the underestimate of the century. I've definitely experienced the coffee shakes before. Uh, caffeine is one of the substances that affects you more strongly as you get older. You can also have caffeine withdrawal, which can involve headache and fatigue and look almost like the flu. Now, I hear a lot of students uh, say that there's no such thing as marijuana addiction. But remember, you can get addicted to almost anything. And on the books, in the DSM-5, there is a diagnosis for cannabis use disorder. So you can be diagnosed with cannabis addiction. All right, let's close out this episode by talking about the lone non-substance related disorder that made the cut for the DSM-5, which is gambling disorder. Gambling disorder involves gambling behaviors that persist for over a year. You might have the need to bet increasing amounts of money, essentially gambling tolerance. You might get irritable when you can't gamble. You can't stop or cut back your gambling. You're often obsessed with gambling. You chase your losses, meaning you can't walk away when you lose. You try to double up and get your money back. You try to hide your gambling. It affects your job, your relationship, or your academics, and it affects your finances. Where I live in Tennessee, within the last couple of weeks, mobile betting on sports has become legal. So we've been bombarded with all these ads on sports betting. And even if you're not into sports betting, I'm not, with all the ads, it makes you sort of want to do it. Um, the University of Memphis, where I did my undergrad, my grad education, has a gambling lab. It's pretty cool, although I've never, I never actually went inside of it. But supposedly they have slot machines, carpet from actual casinos, roulette wheels, and cocktails to simulate a casino environment. Supposedly it's one of the only places in Tennessee with a legal slot machine. I have unfortunately seen gambling behaviors in kids and adolescents. With video games, kids are spending large amounts of money, usually their parents' money, on loot boxes. You know, you spend money and sort of like a slot machine, you get a loot box that might have like a rare skin or something in it. It's sort of the same reinforcement system as a slot machine. There was also lots of gambling going on in our public schools. Uh, I hear that there was gambling documented in every single Memphis high school, especially in boys' bathrooms. Dice games were especially popular because if a teacher is coming, you can just pocket the dice and hide them. It's quick and easy, unlike dealing 52 cards or something and having to pick that up. And they were betting for not insignificant amounts of money. 
Anyways, I think that's a wrap on this episode. Send any mailbag questions or episode requests to ctayl 41 at cbu.edu. Till the next episode, take care and stay well.